Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 345 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Christian Davenport. He's been a staff writer at the Washington Post since 2000, and he currently covers the space and defense industries for the financial desk. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, The Space Barons, which explores the world of private spaceflight through the eyes of four billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Paul Allen. And this interview will focus mostly on Jeff Bezos, since we've previously discussed Elon Musk back in episode 154, and Richard Branson and Paul Allen back in episode 221. So definitely check those out if you miss them. And there is a bit of background noise on this call from the Washington Post newsroom, but it mostly disappears after about 10 minutes, so definitely stick with it. And so now here's our interview with Christian Davenport. All right, so we're here with Christian Davenport. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so your new book is called The Space Barons. So how'd this book come about? Well, I've been covering, uh, you know, the commercial space industry for the Washington Post, um, you know, for several years. And, you know, the more you, I wrote about it, the more I kind of came to believe that what we were witnessing or what I was, you know, putting in the paper every day really amounted to, you know, something bigger. I mean, it just sort of transcended the coverage of the, 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 you know, that I could do for the Washington Post. And to me, that's it all, if you put it together, what, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and the late Paul Allen were doing, you know, sort of amounted to the beginning, uh, or the beginnings of a new era in, in space. And so I thought I wanted to try to, um, capture that in a book. Um, you know, because I think it's the sort of thing that we'll look back on in 20, 30, 40 years from now as a transformative time in, in space. So that's what I was trying to do with the book. So what was the process like of writing the book? Was it fun? Was it challenging? <laughs> you know, it is my second book. And I think, you know, the process is always fun to have written a book. <laughs> you know, now, now it feels great. Um, but, you know, it's really hard. You, you know, the thing with a, with a book is that you just, at least the way I, I work, you never let it go. You're working every day. It's always in the back of your mind. Um, it's just sort of like an all-consuming life suck. I mean, it's just <laughs> totally obsessive. Um, but, you know, and, and you know, there is, as a friend of mine used to say, you know, there is the, the liberating, you know, power of commitment, right? And when you commit to a project like this, there is something, you know, liberating, and that's what you're doing, you know, with your life. And, you know, the good thing was it's a story that, you know, I think is really interesting. I'm obsessed with it. I wrote the book. Uh, you know, it came out. I'm, I still covered for the post. I mean, it's just such an interesting time what's going on in space. So, you know, in that regard, it was, you know, it's really cool. And then the story, you know, continues to this day with all of these companies and what they're doing. So, you know, maybe in some respects, you know, what I've just written is, you know, sort of the really a first chapter to a much larger story. I mean, you were able to take a year off to write the book. Is that right? Yeah, I took about 10 months off, um, you know, from my job at the Post. I was at the uh, the Wilson Center, um, you know, it's a think tank in D.C., which was nice. They put me up, uh, you know, sort of had an office, um, you know, had great research facilities, got, you know, documents from the Library of Congress. Um, it's nice, you know, to have a place to force you to get up and, and get out of the house in the morning. I also have three young kids, you know, that wreak a little bit of havoc. So it was good to have a place to go. So when you pitched this to publishers, was there automatic interest or was it a bit more of a hard sell? Yeah, I mean, I think I, there there was interest, um, you know, but I think it was still a little bit early in some respects that, you know, um, people had sort of heard about SpaceX. Uh, they had known about Elon Musk. Um, but, you know, people didn't realize that Jeff Bezos, a lot of people don't even realize that Jeff Bezos, you know, has a space company. Um, and that, you know, his true passion is space. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that we did have an, enough, you know, uh, interest in, in a lot of people. And obviously it was a great story and it's, um, it's done really well, uh, thankfully. And it was, you know, and that's what I had said when I was talking to Jeff uh, Bezos to try to get him to participate in the book. You know, I was like, people see you through the lens of Amazon as, you know, Obviously, they should, but I, I think they should also see you through the lens of space because I, I think, frankly, that's what he's, you know, most passionate about in Blue Origin, as he's, you know, said since is, you know, some of the most important work he's been doing. Well, right. And so the book you focus on these four billionaires who've gotten into private space enterprises. So Jeff Bezos, you mentioned Elon Musk, Paul Allen, and Richard Branson. 
And you were able to get interviews with all four of them. So how did you manage to pull that off? Well, um, you know, I had I had interviewed uh, Elon and Jeff and Richard uh, as a Washington Post reporter. And, you know, I was one of the few reporters that was invited out uh, to Blue Origin in early 2016 uh, to get a tour of the factory. And they spent some time with Jeff you know, there. Um, and so I knew, you know, him and his people from, from doing that. I'd also, you know, obviously spent a lot of time covering SpaceX, you know, had had interviews with, you know, Elon Musk, um, before and had built those relationships up over time. Um, you know, same with, uh, Richard Branson, Virgin Galactic had been covering their company. You know, the, the hardest one, frankly, was, uh, Paul Allen, who, uh, obviously, you know, died last year. Um, but, you know, he was, you know, the most reclusive of the bunch. And, um, you know, I was sort of interested, although his, you know, his role in his company, you know, plays a much smaller role in the book. So it was interesting that he was in some ways the, the more difficult to get. Um, but, you know, I had kept them, you know, posted on, on what I was doing throughout. And then once I had, you know, interviewed Jeff and Elon and Richard, uh, I went to them and said, you know, I've already interviewed these guys, and if you want in, um, you know, now's the time. And and uh, they did, so I was I was grateful for that. I mean, people might think since you work for the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, that that would have been kind of an automatic interview. But you you had to go to some effort to to interview him for this book, right? There was something involving his uh, a photo of his grandfather or something you had to show him. Yeah, no, I mean, you would think that, and I wish that, that that would help us get an in, but it's, you know, we get the, usually the same, you know, no comment and brush off, uh, you know, that everyone else gets, unfortunately. Um, right. So I had been, you know, for months trying to get Jeff to participate. And, you know, thankfully there was a period, uh, while I was writing the book where he was in DC a lot and going to a lot of space events that I would also get invited to. So I had the opportunity, frankly, to just, you know, kind of go up and talk to him. And on a number of occasions, you know, not just going to his, you know, his PR people and saying, Hey, I'm doing this book, but could take it directly to him. One of the first times, um, I saw him, I, I knew he was you know, a big devotee of um, a guy named Gerard O'Neill, um, who wrote a book called the, the High Frontier. And if you hear Jeff Bezos talk about space, he's very much an O'Neillian, the sort of notion that we shouldn't just go to you know, one particular planet, but we, you know, he wants humanity just to spread out into space and live in habitats in space. Um, and, uh, you know, Gerard O'Neill was a professor at Princeton, uh, where, where Jeff was a student, um, and so I went to actually to the uh, National Archives at the Air and Space Museum and got, you know, they had uh, some of Gerard O'Neill's papers. And I brought some of those papers um, to Jeff at an event, uh, hoping that would spark his interest. Um, that one didn't quite work out. Uh, he never did take Gerard O'Neill's class, even though he went to a lot of his lectures. So then my next, that was sort of a swing and a miss. And then a few months later, I saw him at another event. And this time I brought... Uh, a press release about his grandfather. And if you know anything about Jeff, you know his maternal grandfather played a huge role in his life. Jeff spent every summer of his childhood on his grandfather's ranch in South Texas. It was sort of really, you know, a very close relationship with his grandfather. And his grandfather was one of the first hires at ARPA, you know, the predecessor to DARPA, which was founded uh, like NASA was in 1958 in reaction to Sputnik. And so was, in many ways, ARPA was sort of, you know, a military space agency. And what I found in the archives was the press release from when Jeff's grandfather left ARPA to go back to work at the Atomic Energy Commission. And the press release had uh, a picture of his grandfather on the release, a very big picture. And so I saw him, uh, you know, a few months later and handed him the press release, which he had never seen. And I could see, you know, the expression on his face. And, uh, and I, you know, I just said, I'm putting my cards on the table. I'm just really trying to impress you. I'm writing this book. You know, I really, you know, and I, that's when I said, I think people see you through the lens of Amazon. They should see you through the lens of space. I'm trying to impress you with the level of research I'm doing. And then I thought I had him. And he said, you know, well, I'm inclined to participate. And then it took sort of another couple of months of working with his people to get on the schedule. But then I did. I got, you know, another tour of the factory, a good long time with him. Um, and I think, you know, his insights, I think that's one of the things, I mean, Elon's out there, we know a lot about SpaceX, they're great at marketing, gets a lot of attention, but Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos have been much more, you know, quiet and secretive about what they're doing. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what, you know, what I was trying to do with the book was to open that up a little bit.
Well, right. You know, I've previously interviewed Ashley Vance. He wrote a biography of Elon Musk, and I interviewed Julian Guthrie. She wrote a book about the X Prize and Spaceship One. So I was pretty well informed about some of the other characters in, in the book, but I really didn't know much about Jeff Bezos in terms of space. And uh, like you were saying, I, I was sort of surprised to find out uh, how much was going on with Blue Origin. And also what sort of brought Jeff Bezos to my attention specifically was that he saved The Expanse, which is my favorite science fiction TV show. Right. And so that kind of made me curious, like, oh, is he a big science fiction fan? And so I started looking into it a little bit more. And, and there's a lot about that in your book that I'd like to, to talk about and, and focus on. Um, so you mentioned that he's, he would spend summers um, with his grandparents. And um, it sounds like he first discovered science fiction at the town library there. Is that right? Yeah. And as it turned out, um, you know, one of the like town residents had this massive science fiction uh, collection, you know, Heinlein and Asimov and sort of, you know, all the greats and um, had donated to the um, local library there. It's this, you know, really small rural uh, library in South Texas that just had this uh, extraordinary collection. And um, Jeff just devoured it. And, you know, I think he said read, you know, over, you know, from when he was a young boy all the way through high school, you know, just devoured every episode. He's obviously also, um, you know, a huge Trekkie. Um, you know, he named his, uh, his dog, uh, Kampala after one of the characters. One of his holding companies is, uh, named after a Star Trek character. Um, yeah, Zephram LLC is the name of the company named for, um, the character in Star Trek who, you know, created the warp drive, which is really interesting because one of the, you know, big things that Blue Origin, a space company, is doing is building, you know, sort of a big next generation engine. Um, you know, so he's got, you know, real ties. He actually uh, was had a cameo in one of the Star Trek um, films. So that's, you know, obviously a huge influence over him. Yeah, I actually just went and looked that up. Uh, so this is in um, Star Trek Beyond. And I'll just tell people how to find it because it's not easy to find his cameo. But um, there's a scene near the beginning of the movie where an alien woman comes to the space station in distress and in need of help. And right before she's questioned by Captain Kirk, uh, there's an there's an alien who says to her, um, speak normally and walks off screen. And that's Jeff Bezos in, in heavy prosthetics. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, and he he tweeted out a picture of him in you know all dressed up, and you would have no idea uh, it's him, which is I'm sure how he how he likes it. But yeah, it's um it's pretty funny that scene. Hmm. Well, so you mentioned that he was uh, a devotee of uh, Gerard O'Neill, um, and he actually he's been uh, sort of promoting O'Neill's ideas as far back as at least as far as high school in his valedictorian speech. Yeah, and that's so that's one of the really you know, interesting things, you know, that I, you know, found and sort of came to realize in reporting the book is that, so today his, so his vision, it, you know, this Gerard O'Neill vision that, you know, that humanity should just go out and expand into space and that this idea that, you know, earth is finite in its resources, but our population is growing and our demand for energy and resources is growing, but there's only, you know, so much nat natural gas, so much, um, uh, you know, coal and, you know, things we need to sort of fuel our modern day and energy and to provide the power for our, our Kindles, which I'm sure he's, you know, wants <laughs> to do with, with Amazon. Um, and that, you know, but in space, you know, all that is energy and resources are virtually unlimited in the sense that you could go and get, you know, solar energy and there's no night and no day and you don't have to worry about the atmosphere and, you know, eventually go to asteroids and do asteroid mining and refined metal. So he has this idea, you know, that very much fits into the Gerard O'Neill vision of space is that you go into space to preserve the Earth. And he's, you know, today he gives this stump speech about, you know, just kind of what I was saying about how you go out, you know, to space to preserve Earth. And today he says, you know, in his line that we should preserve Earth, you know, it should be zoned residential. Um, you know, that Earth is this really magnificent um, place with waterfalls and palm trees and, you know, snow and bacon and wine and whiskey and all these wonderful things. And that, you know, other planets, for example, like Mars, which is where Elon Musk wants to go, are you know, really desolate and hard places to live. Um, but that, you know, Earth is where we evolved and, and wants to preserve it. So that's what he talks about today. But when he was 18 years old and giving a speech at his high school, you know, it's virtually the same speech, but instead of the line, instead of saying, um, you know, Earth should be zoned residential. He said Earth should be, you know, preserved as a national park. 
Um, you know, so obviously it's just something he's been thinking about for a very long time. And he said, you know, that the high frontier that sort of embraces a lot of those ideals had a huge influence on him. Um, and, you know, still today, that's what he, what he, you know, that's still his vision. So it's just remarkable to me how consistent he's been on that. Well, just the way that you describe these O'Neill seminars at Princeton just sounds amazing. Uh, the book says, O'Neill seminars, which were open to anyone on campus, would encourage those very capable students who weren't excited by ordinary coursework to look at applying physics to large-scale projects for the benefit of humanity. Uh, I wish there was something like that when I was in college. I, I might have been a lot more engaged. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Just go to, you know, lectures on the side with this brilliant professor to talk about space and space ideals. And in addition to doing that, he was, you know, uh, the president of the student, you know, sort of space group on campus at at Princeton um, uh, known as SEDS, which is, you know, still sort of a big deal across college campuses today. And then even, you know, after he left Princeton and went to work uh, in New York at, you know, D.F. Shaw, the sort of early hedge fund. Um, before he founded Amazon, he, you know, still was interested in space and went to, uh, an auction. I think it was at Sotheby's where they were auctioning off, uh, all this, um, Soviet, uh, space memorabilia. And, um, he bid on a couple of items. You know, again, he wasn't, uh, you know, hadn't founded Amazon, didn't have billions of dollars and lost out on, uh, on the artifacts that he bid on. One was, a, I think a chess set that you could use in space and, you know, in microgravity where there were nooks in the chess set so the pieces wouldn't float off the board. Um, and another was a hammer that had these uh, hollowed out head and these uh, shavings that when you, you know, use the hammer and went forward, the weight would then, you know, kind of go forward. Anyway, he lost those um, because uh, I guess anonymously uh, Ross Perot was going around <laughs> bidding on everything. So he lost that to another billionaire at the time. I just think it's so interesting from the point of view of Gerard O'Neill. I mean, unfortunately, you know, he never lived to see any of this, but that, you know, you just have to have the right influence on one student or, you know, have your idea reach that one person who it really resonates with to have just a massive impact on the world. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, too, because like in researching, you know, spending some time researching Gerard O'Neill, like t today, a lot of people don't know him uh very well. And that, you know, Jeff is, you know, going out and adopting all of these ideals and, you know, in many cases giving credit to Gerard O'Neill, but a lot of people think it's, you know, that Jeff has sort of come up with this on his own. Uh, but at the, you know, at the time in the 70s, you know, Gerard O'Neill, you know, at least in some corners of, you know, the scientific community was, you know, a big deal. He was on 60 Minutes. Uh, he was quoted in, um, Newspaper articles like the Times, New York Times did a big story about some of his plans. You know, his book, The High Frontier in the 70s, you know, was a really big deal. So, you know, he did have that. He did have some reach. Um, and it is interesting that it, it does endure, um, you know, through, through Blue Origin today, or at least, you know, they're trying to carry that forward. Well, I don't know if you've seen this TV appearance. Probably you have. But, um, you know, last year Wired interviewed Jeff Bezos. And apparently one of the conditions for the interview was that people had to watch this um, this TV appearance with Gerard O'Neill and Isaac Asimov. Have you seen this? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And that's, you know, where it talks about, you know, as Blue Origin says, millions of people living and working in space and it, yeah, I mean, so, so when I, when I was telling the story earlier of trying to get Jeff to participate in the book and where I, where I failed and I, the, the, what I got from Gerard O'Neill's archive was, um, a test from his, uh, that he gave to his, um, his first year, uh, physics student. And it was essentially along the lines of, you know, the, the, the question was, you know, to, you know, it had to do with building how big would your solar array have to be if you wanted to generate, you know, X amount of power to sustain a colony of 50 people in space. I mean, you know, so, so taking the sort of <laughs> science fiction ideas of living in space, but then applying the real math to it to make it seem possible. And, you know, and that's what he grew up in. While I didn't take the class, those are the sorts of things that Gerard O'Neill was talking about and applying, you know, taking science fiction scenarios, but then you know, showing the math behind it for how it would actually work. And that's the thing that really resonated with people. 
I mean, it, there's an interesting moment in this uh, this TV clip where the interviewer asks Isaac Asimov. He says, "You know, you've written science fiction for decades. You've written 200 books, whatever. D- did you ever write about this idea of just habitats, human habitats, floating in space?" And Asimov says, "No, and I, I don't think anyone had. I think we've been planet chauvinists in a way. Um, That's but, right. But that that was something that Gerard O'Neill. It was it was a you know a really new concept uh, that he came up with." Yeah, and so right. So actually, one of the uh, the um, the chapters of, of my book is titled "Somewhere Else Entirely" because you know, Gerard O'Neill posed the question: you know, where should humanity go in space? Like, where where do you go? Do you go uh, to the moon? Do you go to Venus? Do you go to Mars? Or do you go to somewhere else entirely? And you know, his answer was somewhere else entirely. That you know, you don't have to go to any one place. And this is you know what differentiates. Um, you know, Jeff from Elon, where Elon wants to colonize Mars and go to one single place that if anything should happen on the Earth, if we get hit by an asteroid and there's an extinction event and we go the way of the dinosaurs, then humanity needs a backup. And Mars makes the most sense because, you know, it has at least some atmosphere, it has gravity, you know, it's not always you know, minus uh, 100 degrees. Um that, you know, humanity could live there, even though, you know, may not be entirely pleasant. But then there's this other idea that, no, we don't have to go to any particular place. We could just be in space. Um, one of the other ideas that came from this futurist that, um, you know, I don't know if Jeff read him or not, but he was aware of some of the ideas, uh, came from a guy named Dandridge Cole, who had this idea of, that you could turn asteroids into habitats by, um, you know, sort of, uh, coring out the middle of uh, an asteroid and then living inside the asteroid. And um, I talked to uh, one of uh, Jeff's classmates at Princeton who was in the student space group, and he was sort of talking about this idea of how you, you know, live in an asteroid. And apparently one of the other students got really upset and said, <laughs> you know, how dare you, you know, rape the, the cosmos and, and, you know, ruin, you know, sort of acting as like an environmentalist. And what right do you have to, you know, dig holes in rocks and, and Jeff sort of said, you know, and she stormed off and just, Jeff apparently said something to the effect of, you know, did she just defend the rights of the inalienable rights of a barren space rock? And everyone sort of burst into laughter. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, he grew up at least, you know, thinking about and spending a lot of time, um, you know, focused on. Um, and I always thought it was interesting that when he founded Blue Origin, one of the first people who was involved in the company was. Uh, Neil Stevenson, the science fiction writer who, you know, was friends with Jeff and there from the very beginning and had, you know, written, wrote, you know, a book like Seven Eves, for example, um, you know, and really sophisticated, you know, science fiction and looking into the future in a very sort of detailed and real way. Well, right. And I was really surprised and excited to find out that Neil Stevenson had played such a critical role in the origins of, of Blue Origin. I, I had no idea about that. But so, so talk about they, they go to see a movie together and that sort of kicks everything off. Yeah. So they they had been a, a friend. I, you know, obviously talked to, to Jeff and um, and interviewed Neil Stevenson as well. And um, yeah, it's like it was just sort of, you know, Blue Origin was almost born on a lark. They was like 1998, 99. They, the two of them went to see, uh, October sky, um, which was based on, uh, Homer Hickam's, uh, really tremendous, uh, memoir rocket boys, uh, about him, you know, growing up in the coal country in West Virginia, but, um, you know, just building, starting a rocket club when, when he was in school and firing off rockets. Um, Anyway, they went to, Neil and Jeff went to see that. And I always liked, uh, apparently Neil Stevenson's, someone in his family has a peanut allergy. And so he never could eat, uh, peanut butter or have it in the house. So Jeff told me he made peanut butter sandwiches for them to sneak into the movie theater, which I think it's really funny now that the richest man in the world is sneaking in peanut butter sandwiches for them. And then anyway, they were in a coffee shop after, you know, the movie, which is about, you know, this young kid, uh, you know, chasing his space dreams. And he s- says to Neil Stevenson, you know, I've always wanted to start a rocket company. That's always been my dream. And Neil Stevenson just said, do it, like do it today. Um, and, you know, soon thereafter, um, he did. Uh, and, you know, it's really sort of interesting in that he, he founded it, but it wasn't, 
you know, it wasn't like what it is now where it's building rockets and hardware and engines. I mean, if anything, it was more like, you know, a think tank that was doing research and development. And, uh, you know, with a group of about four people and Neil Stevenson would, uh, you know, write in the morning and then he would go in in the afternoon. They had rented some, you know, rundown warehouse in uh, an industrial part of Seattle. And, you know, really what they were doing, with, you know, Jeff's idea was, you know, let's just start at the very beginning and that, you know, we've been going to space, you know, since, you know, the, the Mercury era and even before, you know, and Werner von Braun firing off his V2 rockets. I mean, we've known about rocket technology, but let's take another look at it. And is there any other way to get to space besides chemically fueled rockets? So they spent, you know, uh, a couple of years just pondering that question and looking at all different sorts of um, ideas. And when I was interviewing Jeff for the book and he looks at me and, you know, I think my eyes are agog because I, you know, nobody knew any of this. And this was all new to me that this is how they had started out. And he said, well, of course, you're going to want to know, you know, the, uh, the more bizarre ideas that we had. And I think <laughs> he's somewhat famous for throwing out ideas. Maybe they'll work, maybe they won't, but you at least, you know, have that outside the box thought. So he turned to me and he said, well, do you know how a bullwhip works? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, that, that crack that actually there's a mini sonic boom in there and that, you know, you can generate uh, the whip to go faster than the speed of sound just with your arm. And the way that works is momentum is mass times velocity. And so as your mass decreases toward the end of the whip, as it gets thinner, your velocity has to increase. And so I'm like digesting that and letting that sink in. And then I'm like, so you were going to bullwhip people into space? And he's like, well, no, 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 not people. I mean, but maybe satellites or cargo and things like that. And he said, well, you could see this was an idea we had, um, you know, that wasn't going to work. And then actually I was talking with um, Neil Stevenson about it. And, you know, he was convinced actually that it, it, it could work. But if you're in space um, and you're already, you know, outside of the atmosphere in a zero gravity environment that you could whip stuff around and in seven eaves, um, there's a part where they use a bullwhip to, um, um, you know, in, in space. It's actually written into the, the book, and that came out of, you know, some of those sessions they were having in the early days of Blue Origin. Yeah, that's really cool. You said he was also, they were also talking about maybe just shooting stuff into space with giant cannons, like in Jules Verne, and having massive laser arrays that would all be focused on the, the ship that would sort of push it out into space. Yeah. And, you know, as sort of a, a heating source and they were looking at all, all different sorts of things. I mean, you know, if you're, you know, a futurist and an engineer, it just would have been, you know, sound like an extremely fun, almost like, you know, graduate student assignment, you know, mm -hmm. to let's look at ways. And ultimately, you know, they felt like they had done their due diligence and that no, a chemically fueled rocket is the best way to get to orbit, but it's got to be reusable. Right. And that's where they, you know, that's where they came to, you know, to, to, to do that, which, of course, had something that SpaceX, um, they came to the same conclusion as well. Right. And so so Jeff Bezos, he gets to the point where, you know, they've done all this this high concept thinking and it's time to actually start building rockets. And so he purchases sort of a ranch in Texas that's what, half the size of Rhode Island, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like I think it's 300 and. 60 or 70,000 acres. It's just massive. It's also where, you know, he's building this 10,000 year clock. Um, you know, that's where it is out in West Texas. And he did it, you know, very uh, secretively because, you know, people, if word gets out among the ranchers that, you know, this rich guy is out buying all this land, they'll jack the prices up on him. So he created all of these, you know, sort of shell companies, you know, to buy the land and they're all named for explorers, uh, you know, and then fall under, you know, the Zephram LLC, um, company. And, um, yeah. And, you know, what I open up the, the book with a scene where he's actually searching for his land in West Texas in 2003. And it's just this crazy story where they get into a helicopter crash, uh, as they're looking for, um, property and, um, they're with us. They had hired, uh, a, um, a cowboy from the area, uh, who I talked to, he, you know, start <laughs> tracking him down. I just had the call of several ranches where he'd done work and he didn't have a cell phone or not connected to the internet or have email. And just had finally called me after he had come in from being, you know, driving the herd or something. And, um, you know, told me the story, which, you know, Jeff told me as well. 
where um, they're looking for the they're looking for land and they're at one stop and they're high up on a mountain. I mean, high for West Texas. I think they're about five thousand feet or so altitude and it was really hot. And so the air was thin and uh, Jeff's attorney was there and then you had the helicopter pilot. So there were four of them crammed into this aircraft and it was fully you know loaded with fuel. So it was quite heavy. And the pilot couldn't get purchased, couldn't uh, take off um, and actually ended up crashing. Uh, one of the, you know, fell on its side into this creek, which, you know, believe it or not, was actually named Calamity, Calamity <laughs> Creek. And, you know, they almost drowned. I mean, it actually was not a very deep creek, but, you know, the cabin soon filled up with with water. Uh, Jeff's attorney, uh, they, they couldn't see her. She was completely submerged. They had to pull her out. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the cowboy who I talked to, he had sustained some injuries and had to go to the hospital. And, you know, the crazy thing about this story is like you couldn't you can't make this stuff up. The uh, helicopter pilot who Jeff had hired was named Cheater Bella, this sort of character from El Paso who uh, had been arrested after he had uh, flown a passenger into uh, the uh, New Mexico State Penitentiary in an attempt to free some of the inmates there. Um, and he was, he was later acquitted that this other person had him at gunpoint and wanted to, you know, forced him to drive into the prison to free these, uh, these inmates. But, you know, and this is the guy who, you know, the founder of Amazon has flying them all over West Texas. <laughs> it's sort of hilarious stuff. Well, you mentioned that the Blue Origin was sort of secretive, and that's a major theme in the book, just how secretive they are compared to SpaceX, uh, you know, to pick an obvious example. Um, but there's a line in the book where you say – so one of their uh, Blue Origin, one of their rockets blows up, and it creates this loud bang that's heard all over the, the county or whatever. And um, and there's a line about how um, uh, Blue Origin was prevailed upon that they had to release a statement about this because uh, their silence and secrecy was just encouraging conspiracy theories to spread. And I was just curious what sort of conspiracy theories have grown up around um, Blue Origin's secrecy. Yeah, well, anytime you, you know, are that quiet and that secretive, like people are going to fill in the blanks on their own. And particularly, you know, you're out in West Texas, you've got all of this land, who knows what's going on out there. Um, you know, there's uh, cameras and fences and, uh, and then all of a sudden there's an ex this explosion. And people knew, you know, that it was, a, that he had a space company there. He had been, uh, flying, um, rockets. And so they ultimately end up calling, ended up calling NASA. And saying like what was going on, but of course NASA had nothing to do with it, and they were um, so finally, the, you know, the head of communications for NASA had to call Blue Origin's PR reps and was like, guys, you can't, you can't just be quiet on this. You have to say something. You owe, you know, some level of transparency. So ultimately, then, you know, however long it was later, they did, you know, put out a statement on it. But that was the sort of thing they had to sort of, you know, force them into, you know, into saying anything, even when something as dramatic and that could affect the, the public as a rocket explosion. Right. And so since the company has kept such a low profile, as you were saying, a, a lot of people just don't really aren't aware of what they've done. So just for, for people who haven't been paying close attention, just what has Blue Origin accomplished uh, so far? So they've had, uh, as of today, I think it's nine flights. Their first step is a, a rocket called New Shepard. And, you know, I'll just back up a minute. They take sort of a very step-by-step -step approach. So First rocket is called New Shepard, named after Alan Shepard, who was the first American to go to space. He went on a suborbital mission up and down, uh, and that's what New Shepard does. It doesn't get to orbit, but it goes up and then it comes back down. Um, they ultimately want to take, uh, you know, paying customers, tourists, like Virgin Galactic does in this, where you sort of buckle up. Uh, they haven't said how much they charge, um, but you're in the space capsule and it launches vertically. And you would, you know, go up and have a few minutes uh, above the Carmen line or 100 kilometers, uh, you know, where you get to float around the cabin, you know, see the, you know, curvature of the Earth, the land masses without boundaries, the darkness of space beyond the thin line of the atmosphere, and then uh, come back down. Um, it's next looking at a, a rocket that would go to orbit uh, named after uh, John Glenn. Uh, so it's called New Glenn, and um, John Glenn obviously was the first American uh, to go to orbit. Um, they've got this massive 
factory down uh, right outside the Kennedy Space Center where they're going to be building that uh, rocket. Um, they've got a launch pad now uh, at Cape Canaveral that they're renovating in anticipation of flying that rocket. Um, they've got a, a new engine, um, which is significant. It's a sort of a significant thing to build a new engine. You know, even the United Launch Alliance, which is the big you know, joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing for their Atlas V rocket. They they use an engine that's made in Russia, actually. So it's a big deal for them to build uh, an engine in-house. And they've actually uh, are selling that to the United Launch Alliance for their next generation uh, rocket. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, so the big steps for them, you know, coming up this year is possibly the first flights with people on their new Shepard rocket and then within a couple of years flying uh, New Glenn for the first time, you know, they're looked to have paying customers to, to do that. So, you know, in some ways, it's really just beginning for them. Now, there's a part in the book where uh, Blue Origin files a patent on the idea of landing a spacecraft at sea. And Elon Musk is scandalized by this because he says this is not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. Kind of what was your take on on Blue Origin filing that patent? Yeah, you know, and and it's something that you see that um, Amazon, uh, you know, does too. They go out and and, and they file patents. I mean, and, and Elon immediately took issue with it. There was a lot of uh, discussion about this concept, um, you know, by people who were looking at it seriously. And then even in science fiction, there's like some Russian movie from like the 50s or 60s that actually where this happens, and you see the booster landing on a boat at sea, um, you know. Elon's the SpaceX's attorneys, you know, challenged the patent and, uh, you know, and filed a, you know, legal challenge and they won. Um, and, you know, it, to me, it was indicative of a time when there was a lot of tension between the two companies, between, you know, Elon and Jeff. Um, I think it was previous to that was the fight over Launch Complex 39A, which is, you know, in, you know, space real estate is, you know, some of the most sacrosanct land you know, you can imagine it's the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center where, you know, the Apollo moon missions went off from. I mean, the Saturn V and Apollo 11 that took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins to the moon, you know, that launch from 39A, the first and last shuttle missions were from 39A. But when the shuttle retired in 2011, then 39A is just sitting there wasting away. I mean, literally rusting away. And NASA's like, what do we do with this thing? Who would even want it? Um, so initially, SpaceX by then had been launching rockets and showing itself as a you know really you know viable force in in the launch industry, and uh, you know they jumped at the chance to grab it, and you know sort of at the last minute, Blue Origin filed this protest and said, wait, if there's going to be you know the government can't just be giving out surplus property, there has to be a competitive bidding process, uh, which they forced, and it really angered SpaceX. Uh, and Elon, I mean, you know, because if this was, uh, 2011, 2013, somewhere in there. And, you know, Blue Origin had yet to fly, go to space, even on a suborbital vehicle, let alone, a, you know, a, a rocket that could get to orbit. And, uh, Elon fired off this email to, um, Space News, which was covering it, pointing that out that they don't have a rocket and, you know, you know, if they were able to build a rocket, you know, that meets the qualifications for, you know, 39A, that he would gladly share the pad with them. But he said the chances of them being able to do that, you know, the chances were greater of unicorns dancing in the flame duct, which is one of the great takedowns in the history of takedowns, I think. I mean, just, um, you know, so you had tension building between the two, um, between that and that patent lawsuit. And, you know, SpaceX ultimately prevailed in both of those. So, I mean, when Blue Origin files a patent like that, do you think that Jeff Bezos is thinking all's fair in love and war? Or does in his head, does he think that there's a legitimate case for that patent? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, from a business perspective, you want to gobble up all the real estate you can. And 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 it also, you know, serves to let people know what he's thinking about. Um, in this case, since he lost uh, and you know, in a, in a sort of public way and in an embarrassing way. I don't know if it was the best choice because Elon made a big deal out of it and it didn't really make him look good. Um, so 
I thought one thing I thought was interesting is that there was an interview in 2005 uh, in Time Magazine that Jeff Bezos gave where he talked about reading Alistair Reynolds, uh, who's a really great science fiction author. But I just think it's interesting that someone as busy as he is, obviously, still finds time to read science fiction even today. Yeah, I yeah, and I you know I got that sense that that's important to him to sort of nourish his his mind to kind of keep that um, stuff up and to keep going even today. You know, I I'm you know he's friends with Neil Stevenson and then you know read um, Seven Eves, which actually was was dedicated um, to him. I think he was reading uh, Ready Player One not too long ago too. So he definitely tries to keep up on that stuff. Although I think a while ago you could see, you know, what he was reading on Amazon and, uh, you know, the reviews, um, he was leaving. And at one point, you know, he had mentioned to somebody asked him what he was reading and he, you know, it's this very technical engineering book on, you know, rocket engine development, you know, so that sort of gave you some hint early on of, on what his plans were. Is there any other science fiction that he likes uh, that you know about that didn't make it into your book? I don't think so. Uh, I know, I know Asimov, um, Heinlein. I was, uh, at an event where, uh, the he- Robert Heinlein's estate, um, gave him a very prestigious award, uh, you know, which actually Peter Diamandis had won previously. I think Elon Musk had also won. Um, and during that ceremony, Jeff, you know, talked about, you know, what, uh, you know, Heinlein had meant, meant to him. I mean, so I mentioned that kind of what got me interested in Jeff Bezos initially was that he had saved to the expanse. Did you follow that story at all? You know, I remember when that happened. Um, I, I confess I haven't, uh, watched it, but I, you know, I think that something that, you know, that Jeff wants to do and, and Elon wants to do is to not just have success in space to build rockets that are reusable, but to, reinvigorate interest in space is important to them. I mean, when they grew up, they were interested in it. You know, Jeff talked about being five years old and watching, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. He said that was a seminal moment for him. He obviously was a huge Trekkie and a science fiction fan obsessed by NASA, you know, and, uh, you know, as you said, you know, what government agency inspires seventh graders, right? <laughs> you know, like the IR people aren't, you know, growing up wanting to you know go work for the IRS or the Department of Agriculture but he was really inspired by NASA um and you know Elon Musk early on you know wanted to have this crazy he had this crazy idea where he wanted to fly a plant to the surface of Mars which Ashley Vance wrote about in in his book uh in the in the the the, the point of that was to sort of show life on Mars you know green leafy you know live object a plant on the you know, sort of dead, lifeless, orange surface of Mars, but in order to do that to help um, boost NASA's status and its standing and to boost more funding for the agency. Um, And you've seen, uh, you know, SpaceX almost is like its own, you know, live TV show, its own reality TV show that people are watching and following along. And in many cases, you know, they've got a lot of fans and a lot of devotees and almost single-handedly reinvigorating interest in space, you know, the way we were interested in space in the 60s and 70s. And just, you know, now today it's like space isn't part of the national consciousness anymore. I mean, not, I mean, except for the historical sense, except for, you know, the 1961 John F. Kennedy speech, you know, we're going to go to the moon before the, you know, decade is out, you know, we'll do it because it's hard. That's how it is. But, you know, but but they want it to be, you know, current. And, um, you know, I thought the uh, saving the expanse is a great way, you know, to do that and to keep that going. And, you know, I'm sure Jeff watches and is a fan. No, he definitely is. Yeah, he said that. Um, I'll also just mention that uh, Amazon has been moving pretty aggressively to develop other science fiction properties. Uh, Ian Banks' Culture Series, Larry Niven's Ring World, and Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash are all yeah. uh, reportedly in development. And, and word is that, you know, a directive has come down directly from Jeff Bezos that, that he wants more science fiction uh, on their streaming service. Yeah. And, you know, so I was, uh, he, Amazon and Jeff throw this um, conference every year called uh, MARS. It stands for Machine Learning, Automation, Robotics, and Space. 
Um, and I went a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, one of the speakers at the conference was Andy Weir, the author of The Martian. Um, and, you know, I know Jeff was a fan of that. And I, Neil Stevenson and Andy Weir did a sit down when um, Andy's latest book um, came out. And, you know, I think it all it it, it sort of goes in line with their personal interests. Uh, but also also their professional ones, because the more people are interested in space, the better it is, frankly, for their business as well. But I do think it's obviously it's a personal personal passion. Right. One line from your book that kind of jumps out at me is that Jeff Bezos says, on the Internet today, two kids in their dorm room can reinvent an industry because the heavy lifting infrastructure is in place for that. Two kids in their dorm room can't do anything interesting in space. Could you talk about what is what would it look like for two kids in their dorm room to be able to do interesting things in space? Yeah. So, I mean, just to back up on that for a minute. So his, his point is there is like when he started Amazon, like the infrastructure was there, you know, there were, there, the telephone company had put down the, the cable lines that were then used for the internet. And, um, you know, he was selling books on Amazon and, you know, the postal service could deliver the books for him. And there was this technology called the credit card where he could take people's payments. So all of that was there, right? So he and anybody else could just, or Elon Musk could start PayPal. Um, you know, but that's not there in space. You know, it's just too difficult to get to space. It's too expensive. You know, it's been, you know, governments and nations have had long held monopolies on space travel for a reason. It just took the resources of a nation to be able to do it. It's a hard uh, financial challenge. It's a hard physics problem. It just takes an extraordinary amount of energy to go up. It's still very dangerous. Um, and you know, what, he wants to do and what Elon wants to do, all of them want to do is to make access to space more routine and more reliable. That's where you get the reusability and reusing the rockets to help bring down the cost. Um, but once that infrastructure is in place, you know, that's just the railroad going west. And then what happens when you get, you know, uh, to California? And he hopes that there is this sort of, as he says, economic dynamism that happens in space where, you know, there are all kinds of entrepreneurial efforts that flourish. Um, you know, what those would be, I mean, we're talking, you know, now probably a couple generations out. Um, you know, you, it, we probably don't even know. I mean, there are so many um, unknowns, unknowns, but, you know, people talk about manufacturing in space, more science experiments, asteroid mining, energy resources in space, harness, harnessing that energy, bring it back um, to earth. Um, but as he said that if he's 80 years old and looks back on his life and has seen that infrastructure to space start to really take hold, then he would be a happy 80 year old. I mean, what is kind of the current status of efforts to mine asteroids you mentioned? And you also talk about hotels in space, kind of what's going on with that right now? Well, so with hotels in space, sort of a really interesting time. Um, you know, I think there are two or three main players uh, and sort of companies that want to build habitats in space. Um, one of them, Bigelow Aerospace, uh, they their concept is to not build, you know, struck big steel, you know, metal, metallic structures in space and assemble them in space, but to build inflatable habitats that are made out of like almost like a Kevlar-like material that you pack into the nose cone of a rocket, and then when it gets to space, you can inflate it, almost like a balloon. And uh, actually, one of these uh, habitats is currently attached to the International Space Station and has been for some time, um, you know, as sort of a test. And the astronauts, you know, go in and take test readings on it, and, and it all seems to be performing well. And this becomes sort of a key question, uh, you know, that actually NASA and the Trump administration have highlighted, like what happens after the International Space Station? Um, you know, it's been continuously inhabited for now almost 19 years. Uh, it's getting older. You know, at some point, it can't stay up there forever. At some point, there's gonna, you're gonna need another place to go. And so, you know, the White House floated this idea, which, you know, Congress is opposed to, uh, of ending direct funding to the International Space Station by 2025 and seeing if there's some commercial entity that could take it over. Um, so that's sort of a really fits into the sort of broader context of, you know, trying to commercialize low Earth orbit. And, uh, you know, I don't know how viable that is, but, you know, the space habitats is a big part of it. 
Now, the space mining aspect of it is, you know, sort of really sexy and interesting and gets a lot of attention. But, you know, the main player there, a company called Planetary Resources, uh, basically was acquired by uh, another company and doesn't look like, you know, they're going to have any success at all doing that. I think, you know, that maybe um, they were just a little bit um, too early. But, you know, that's, I think, as, you know, they're... It's an emerging space industry is starting to come to fruition in these early years. I think it's, uh, you know, it's going to be tumultuous and there are going to be startups and there are going to be companies that flourish and companies that, that fail. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, what you're seeing, particularly with asteroid mining. And we'll see what these habitats, how many of these companies will actually flourish. Will they have enough demand and customers who can afford to use them, whether that's you know, other countries wanting to start astronaut programs or companies wanting to do research. I mean, you know, we'll see. I mean, you quote a Goldman Sachs analyst as saying a single asteroid the size of a football field could contain $25 billion to $50 billion worth of platinum. Yeah. And, you know, so this is the thing that what I've noticed just in reporting this over the last five years um, is how the investment community is becoming more interested in space. I mean, I think early on space investors were, you know, the space geeks, they were the enthusiasts. They were, you know, just more interested in the dream than they were perhaps on the return in investment. But now you've seen more players get into this. I mean, the fact that Google and Fidelity invested a billion dollars into SpaceX should tell you something. And the fact that, you know, uh, you know, companies like Morgan Stanley are, are talking about it. Um, you know, whereas they used to say, the quickest way to become a millionaire in space was to start out as a billionaire. Um, now I think people are starting to believe that actually you can make money in space. And, you know, as a reporter, they say, follow the money. And I've been watching more and more go into it. Now that's not you know, to say that all this is all going to pan out and there won't be some sort of a reset uh, and that there are these waves that, that come through. But, you know, this one seems perhaps more promising than previous ones. In the book, you quote Jeff Bezos as saying that the solar system could support a trillion people if we build space habitats and harness all the energy of the sun and so forth. Do you um, do you know how rigorously that's been analyzed and <laughs> what other people think about that that figure of a trillion people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's his more you know O'Neillian uh, you know vision of the future that's you know hundreds of years out, and I think that's something that. You know, to a lesser degree, you know, Jeff does, uh, Elon certainly does, but, you know, it gets to this idea of wanting to set a goal and a high point and a version of the future that's optimistic and hopeful. And, um, you know, I think Elon and Jeff would both tell you that by nature they're, you know, sort of optimists and want to, you know, look to the future and it's a way to, you know, motivate themselves and to motivate their uh, the workers at their companies, if they feel like they're working, you know, toward this future, I don't know, a trillion is any of it is sustainable or real, but it's an interesting concept to think about. You know, he talks about, um, you know, what if there were, you know, the human race really flourishes and it just is able to expand off the surface of the earth. And, you know, you've got hundreds of Einsteins and hundreds of Beethoven's. I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing, uh, you know, to ponder, does it get into, you know, sort of the downsides of, you know, <laughs> there, you know, there are obviously some bad apples here and there, you know, what about the Adolf Hitlers and, you know, war, but, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's more really, uh, you know, sort of a concept and a vision and a dream than anything else. Well, there's a line where he says uh, the people who go into this industry do it because they are missionaries. And Elon Musk said something similar that this would never happen without. I think he calls it an ideological drive or something. But this idea that just, um, you know, maybe free market forces alone aren't going to make human colonization of space happen. There has to be almost a religious zeal behind it. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's what, you know, and Elon has said, like, there's got to be something more to life than just waking up and facing challenges and solving one problem after another. And that, you know, the adventure um, of, you know, and the promise of exploration, you know, that inspiring vision of the future is what motivates him, you know, and there's a scene that I wrote about in the book where he's 
at this space conference in Mexico and he's giving this big Mars talk and, you know, and he's doing just that. And here's this, you know, rocket that he's building, but it you know, really just exists on paper. And here's how we're going to go to Mars. And it's going to be this great trip. And, you know, there'll be theaters on board. And, you know, he's sort of painting this very romantic um, vision that's, you know, somewhat divorced from reality. I mean, he was asked, you know, well, what about like radiation, you know, which is a big problem in going particularly to Mars. And he sort of discounted it. Um, and, you know, he takes a lot of heat for that. But I think, you know, there is, you know, it's 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 done on purpose, I think. And it's done to sort of create this hopeful vision um, to inspire people. I mean, just more recently, you know, SpaceX announced they were taking this Japanese billionaire on a trip around the moon. And, you know, I, I don't know when or even if that will ever happen. Um, you know, the rocket they're talking about doing this on doesn't exist. Um, you know, but I think for them, they see some value in you know, just putting that out there and talking about it and that this is our, you know, that this, the, the future that we want to happen and, you know, the way to make it happen is first to sort of imagine it and then, you know, to build it. And, right. you know, the thing yeah. is that, you know, you can discount them and, you know, come with a level of skepticism, which of course, you know, I do as a journalist and, you know, try to hold them accountable and, and press for those sorts of, of answers. But, you know, on all of the other steps, no one said it was, you know, people discounted, you know, particularly SpaceX from the very beginning. They said this was impossible. You can't start a space company. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jeff Bezos was so quiet about it, that, you know, he would have been met with ridicule, you know, certainly that people would say, you, there's no way you can do this and be successful. So why not just talk about it until after you've done it? Um, and, you know, everyone told Elon he couldn't build a rocket that could land. Everyone told him he couldn't fly the Falcon Heavy rocket, which he did. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to bet against them. Right. I liked the line. You quote Bert Rattan in the book as saying something like, uh, "It's you're not doing research unless everyone is telling you it can't be done. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, these, that's how they all, you know, Bert Rattan, you know, built Spaceship One, which won the Ansari X Prize, the first commercial vehicle to go to space. And like, right, people were doubting him. And now guess where Spaceship One is? It's in the Air and Space Museum hanging in the rafters next to the spirit of St. Louis, right? So there you go. I was also, I mean, we mentioned that there have been a bunch of books in this space uh, recently. There was Ashley Vance's book and Julian Guthrie's book. There's also a book uh, called The Rocket Billionaires by Tim Fahrenholtz that covers similar ground, I think. I was just curious if you, um, had, have you read that or were you paying attention to that at all? Yeah, I, I, I know about it. I know Tim, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a great reporter. I saw him at events and, you know, I knew he was doing his and I was, uh, doing mine. Um, I haven't read it, but, um, I know Tim's a, he's a really, he's a great guy and a really wonderful reporter. Uh, so are you like the, um, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk of writing books about Jeff Bezos and Elon <laughs> Musk? I guess so. I mean, you know, I think competition is good. I mean, you know, the, the key thing, if you allow me to, to point out though, that, you know, I took great pains in my book to do the research and actually to spend, time i interviewed all four billionaires and then you know with people with the, in the company as well and i think that kind of you know access is really important when you're doing this kind of work particularly with a book you need to hear from the people involved yeah yeah all right so we're pretty much out of time i heard that you're maybe going to write a follow-up book to this uh at some point who knows i mean we'll we'll see what the next uh year or two brings i mean 2019 could be a really big year uh in space i mean we're talking about Four different spacecraft with the, you know that could fly humans in space uh, in 2019. I mean, who knows if that'll all happen? But you know that would really be extraordinary. So um, this could be shaping up to be a big big year. Mm. So do you have a title in mind for a follow up book? Not yet. Any ideas? <laughs> uh, what would it be like the space emperors? Maybe <laughs> right. <laughs> the space emperors. I love it. <laughs> I'll put that on the list. All right. Yeah. I hope you, you, you give me credit in the uh, acknowledgments. You, you got it. <laughs> All right. Great. So, yes, we've, we've been speaking with Christian Davenport about his new book, The Space Barons. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Christian Davenport for joining us on the show. Special thanks as well to Linda Hacker and Marta MV, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. 
Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.